Well, for those of you who are joining us um, for the first time, we're in a series on the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 7, verse 24 through 30. And, and this is a, a third, the third sermon in, in a series of sermons about defilement. Uh, the Pharisees see that Jesus' disciples are not, you know, scrubbing their hands down, scrubbing the bowls down, scrubbing their clothes down, scrubbing their hair down before they eat. And so they ask Jesus, why are you letting them eat with defiled hands? So after putting them in their place, uh, last week we saw that Jesus goes on to explain what real defilement is. And it is not outside of us, it's inside of us. Real defilement is outside of us. Or inside of us. Thank you, Nate. You're paying attention. That was a, t- that was a test. <laughs> it's inside of us. And so because this, this is how Jesus does it, and I love the way that he teaches. He, he has this long section where he's sitting and he's explaining what defilement is. And, and he's, he's insulting all of their preconceived notions about what it is and what it isn't. Because for the Pharisees, there is a source outside of you that is the mother of defilement. And, and Jesus is like, no, 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 no. And, and then after giving the instruction, he now is going, this story about this, this Syrophoenician woman is not separate from what's come before. He's now showing them. I, I told you it's not what's outside of that it's not what's outside of you, and now I'm going to show you. Because this woman has no place going into this room with, the, with these Jewish men. She, that is like, she is as unwelcome there as you are in God's throne room without his grace. <laughs> right? And that's the point of the story. Like, f- for the Pharisees, the headwaters of defilement comes walking into the room in the middle of dinner. Okay? And there's all these extra biblical rules. You're not supposed to have one of those people in your house. They're not supposed to come near you when you're eating. And so this is what Jesus is demonstrating. He, he's now going all the way with the lesson. And so before we jump into the text, let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your Sabbath, uh, for this day in which we rest in Christ, in which we gather in Christ, in which we rejoice in Christ and feast on Christ. We pray, Lord God, that as we open your word now, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, that you would continue to build us up and, and grow us in the faith, that you would deal with our sin, that you would um, convict and comfort each of us as, as each of us needs. Uh, you know what's going on in, in all of our lives. Uh, you know to what purpose you have called each of us, and you know exactly how this sermon today will bring about um, your glory and your will in our lives. And we pray, Lord God, that we would be silent and that we would listen and that we would get up from here and we would go and we would do. All to the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, what we see in this story is that Jesus is crossing all kinds of boundaries. Right? He is a person who, who, <laughs> who doesn't respect the boundaries of others. Not geographical boundaries, ethnic boundaries, gender boundaries, theological boundaries. This is the only passage in Mark where the healed person is definitely a Gentile pagan. This woman, up to the moment of this story, is not a believer. Her kid is not a believer. Think about that. Up till now, he's been amongst the Jews, healing Jews. Now he's healing somebody who, up until this moment, where she wasn't even in the family. She's not even a believer. Mark's placement of the incident in the district of Tyre and immediately following the discussion of clean and unclean provides a concrete example of Jesus' disregard for the scribal concept of defilement. He thinks it's hogwash. He told them it's hogwash. And now he's going to show them it's hogwash. 
Now, this invites comparison with uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 9. That's the story where Peter, after being instructed in a trance not to regard as defiled what God has cleansed, ministers immediately in the household of Cornelius. And, and in that story, right, it's exactly like this one. Peter is told, don't call unclean what I have called clean. To demonstrate that now, go into the house <laughs> of the unbeliever who's not clean, and, and, and you're going to demonstrate to everyone who's watching that what I'm saying is true. Because... Right, we've talked about all these extra biblical laws. Well, one of them was that a Jew isn't even allowed to go into the house of, an, of a Gentile. That, that's what their laws were. Now, my question is, how are you ever going to preach the gospel to a bunch of pagans if you never go into their homes? They, they've cut themselves off. They think they're a priesthood. They're not a priesthood. They're a bunch of self-righteous bigots who just have built their own little ghetto, and, and they're hunkering down inside of it. And instead of using the law to overcome, instead of using the law to cleanse the land and to cleanse people, they're using it to keep people out. So Peter's told, don't call clean what I, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And, and to show me now that you really are going to do this, go and do the thing that you've never done as a good Jew. Go into this house. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's putting, his actions are now reflecting his teaching. Right? And what did he call all the Pharisees before? He called them hypocrites. What they were saying and what they were doing doesn't align. What he says and what he does aligns perfectly. The faith of the Syrophoenician woman contrasts dramatically with the determined unbelief of the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem. While her witty reply to Jesus indicates a degree of understanding which puts the disciples to shame. Right Here is a Syrophoenician woman. This woman has not read Genesis. This woman has not read the Psalms. This woman has only heard of Jesus this day that she decides to go and see him. And she immediately recognizes who he is and what he is. And given that she recognizes who he is and what he is, there's all kinds of things she believes about him that teaches, that, that, that is taught in scripture that the people who have the scriptures don't know about him. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans. How is it that this unbeliever gets the law and gets who God is and gets what, what she should expect from him, and she's never heard it before? And so they're all, right? here's all the hard-hearted disciples who have been with Jesus from the very beginning. They've all read Genesis. They've all read Psalms, and yet they're befuddled by what he's doing. Here's a woman who hears stories about what Jesus has been doing up to this point, and she's like, okay, I, I ooh. I know who that is, and I'm going to go see him. And, I, and I'm going to debate with him using his words. All, all, up until this point, the Pharisees want to catch Jesus in his words. She wants to catch Jesus in, in his words, too. The difference is faith versus unbelief. She believes. They don't. She, want to tra she wants to trap him in her words. Why? Because it's blessing and joy and contentment and goodness for her. They want to catch him in his words so they can hang him from a tree. It's a big difference, big difference between those two, obviously. Thank you, Nate. That is funny. It is possible that Mark regards this episode as a symbol of the gospel proclamation to all the Gentiles. Remember, his original audience were a bunch of Gentiles hunkered down, gathering in, in the catacombs in Rome. And what they needed to know, what they needed to know with, with certainty, because what was going on in, in the book of Acts, what? Oh, you Gentiles need to become Jews. 
Mark is saying, no, 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 no. I want to guarantee to you guys, you don't have to become Jews. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth, of Jew and Gentile, man and woman. Right? No more are we going to have these synagogues where the women sit in the, up, upstairs behind these walls where you can't even really tell who's, in, who's there. And that's what they were doing. Right? Jews wouldn't even go to Gentiles' homes. Mark wants them to know, no, all of that stuff that separates you from God, all that stuff that separates the people of God from, from the nations is all gone in Jesus Christ. Let me show you how. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. I'm just going to take the first portion. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus withdraws regularly when conflicts with the Jews get really heated. After he healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day, after the Pharisees gathered to decide how to get rid of Jesus, after the death of John the Baptist, in all such stories, Jesus withdrew to the wilderness. He's not yet ready to just go headlong. He, he withdraws. And, and this time he withdraws further than he's ever withdrawn before. This is the first time that he's really, he has left the land. He is in, right? He is out amongst the nations. Because what he has said, he's called the, the leaders hypocrites back earlier in chapter 7, right? That's a big shot. Now, you've got to imagine what Jesus is doing is very strategic at this point. He, if, if you've ever seen Red Dawn, I, lo- I love the original, it's so great. So have you ever seen Red Dawn, right? The, the, the people, the, the Americans are taken over by a bunch of Cubans and communists and all this stuff. And then you got these American guerrillas living out in the woods, in the hills. And they come strategically in from time to time and blow up important things, right? This is also how the French, I know, it's funny, Red Dawn. If you haven't seen it, you should see it if you're old, older than 18. Thank you, Nate. It's a good movie. This is what Jesus is doing. This is how the French resistance was so effective in helping D-Day succeed. Okay, we're not just going to go pell-mell in there and just, you know, shoot at the Germans. We're going to go in and we're going to blow up a strategic location. And so what Jesus is doing is he goes out in the wilderness and he gathers his people and he teaches them and instructs them. And then he's like, all right, let's go down and blow that bridge up. And they go down, they blow the bridge up, and then they go back to the wilderness. That's like what he's doing. When he comes down and interacts with the Jews... It's very strategic, but he understands it's not a full-blown campaign yet, so he withdraws for a time, and then he comes back and he blows up, you know, another railroad road or something. And, and, and he doesn't want too much heat yet because his hour has not yet come. He's not yet ready to climb on the cross. He's got things he's got to accomplish. He's got scripture he's got to fulfill. He's got law that he's got to fulfill. He's got things that he needs to do still. So in this last episode, you see that it gets pretty heated. It gets pretty heated when you take the leaders of the Jews and you call them hypocrites to their face in front of a bunch of big crowd, right? I mean, imagine I'm in the CRC. If I go down, this would never happen. Just imagine for a moment, though. (laughs) I go to Presbyterian, and there they all are, and I call them a bunch of hypocrites. You guys are all a bunch of false teachers. How long do you think I would last in that group? Not long, right? Nor should I. And I should be careful because usually our meetings are on like the eighth floor. So they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. Anyway. Right? Usually when you start poking fingers in people's eyes, they don't keep you around much. So he's got to be careful about how far he goes. So this is why he's withdrawn. This is why he's withdrawn. Jesus is fulfilling the life of Israel and her prophets. He is bringing hope to the Gentile world. He is the savior of the world. 
Now, Sidon, this area that he's in, it, that, that's a person back in Genesis 10.15. It's the firstborn son of Canaan. So he's gone out amongst the Canaanites, okay, which if, if, you've, if you've been keeping score from Genesis up to this point, they're not exactly Israel's friend. <laughs> right? But there he is. He's he stirred up so much trouble, he's got to not just go to the outer reaches of Israel, he's got to go now to the Canaanites. Now, Mark chapter 7, verse 24, it continues on. It says, And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Now think about that for a moment. He did not want anyone to know, and yet they, just, they couldn't stop everyone from finding out who was there. This is the fifth time that Jesus has met in a home. Homes are crucial to the ministry of the Christian church. Jesus doesn't just spend time in the outdoors. He doesn't just spend time in the synagogue, but in the private homes of his followers. Now, and so in the life of a church, right, we're not just about the synagogue. We're not just about the outdoors. We're not just, right, about one location. There needs to be as much ministry in the home as there is going on here. Now, this is the focal point of the week, but he's teaching us something here. It, right? Very often, modern Christians think church is a building that you go to on Sunday, and you go there and you do all your churchy stuff and your really nice churchy clothes and your nice churchy Bibles, and then you go home. Well, Jesus makes a point out of meeting in homes. Furthermore, Mark wants the Gentiles to understand that he's coming. Jesus spent time in homes, so home churches is a good idea. Now, I'm not advocating for home churches now. We were in China, I might. But the point is, he, wa- he wants to, to boost their confidence in what they're doing. You don't have to go down to the synagogue, guys. You're meeting in home churches, and that's what Jesus did. He had home church all the time. So for us in our very busy lives, we can't just think of what the ministry of the church is this thing that we do on Sunday, right? The big production. I mean, look how many people are up here. You got all this equipment. I got this really nice tie on. I mean, this is right. There's a big production to, for us all to be here. We've got to make sure the heat's right. to make sure there's enough wine. This isn't, I mean, this is the focal point, but this isn't the end all be all of our ministry. Jesus meets in homes. Now, the impossibility of remaining unrecognized may have, have to do to his previous contact. We're going to see this now. Up until this point, he's worked very hard at keeping what he's doing quiet, but he can't because the ministry is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Back in chapter 3, verse 8, it said this, from Jerusalem and Edom and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. People have already come from this far land down to see him and to meet him and to hear him. Okay, and so now the word gets out that Jesus is there. Well, people have already heard of him, and, and, and they can't stay away from him. This tells us something. When, I, I, I've often said this. How do you know that a, that, that a ministry is, is effective in doing what it's supposed to? How do you know someone has the Spirit? How do you know that the Spirit is present? Well, it says very clearly in John that what the Spirit does is he teaches us about Jesus. So, right, you don't know the Spirit's there because the Spirit is like the wind. You don't see him. But when you see the trees stirring in the wind, you know that the wind is present. When you see people stirred up about Jesus, you know the Spirit is present. When he can't be hidden, right? Think about Christian communities where he's well hidden. 
Think about Christian ministries where he's not hidden at all. People are like, I, right? This woman hears about him and, and, and hears these stories, and like, that's crazy. I'm going to go see that guy, right? People are clearly talking about it, even though he wants it to be silent. Jesus, when he is present, cannot be hidden and will br- draw people to himself. There's just no way around it. And, and, and so any church, any ministry, any family, any Christian needs to think about that in their own life. I'm not going to spend any more time on that. I refer to my series on getting out of the ghetto. <laughs> we move on to Mark chapter 7, verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, we we encounter this several times in the Gospels. This woman is not welcome in this house. She is not. There's a number of reasons. One, she's a woman. Two, she's a Gentile. A Gentile woman, that is the, the source of defilement that the Pharisees were talking about earlier. Why, when they go down to the marketplaces, do your disciples, after touching all those Syrophoenicians and, my goodness, being near women, don't come back and scrub from head to toe? Right? I Keep that away. Remember when he's talking to the woman at the well and, and, and his disciples come back and they're like, what is he doing? What is he doing? How welcome do you, right? Remember the woman with the hemorrhage, same thing. The woman is defiled from top to bottom. And remember how terrified she was. She was a Jewish woman. She probably understood it better than this woman even. I can't go up to those men and start touching Jesus. I'm going to just sneak up. And I'm just going to check. She wanted to keep the whole thing on the DL because she has no right going anywhere near them. Right? Imagine. I've been in synagogues. I've been amongst the Islamic. And the women are not, like, are you kidding me? First off, you can tell which ones are, right, who's a woman here. Like, usually in Jewish cultures, the really serious ones, they actually shave their heads and wear wigs, and they wear in this sort of weird, androgynous thing, right? Amongst the Muslims, you at least know who the woman is because you can't see any part of her. But in both of those cultures, they keep the women behind walls that have, like, slits in them so they can at least hear what's going on but can't come anywhere near it. Right? And, and, and this is what this culture has been like. The boldness. I, I can't even imagine the chutzpah of this lady. I would have liked to have known her. It's like, man, you go, girl. I'm going to be outside because this is going to go badly. But you go, girl. But why? All these cultural norms, all these expectations, all these men sitting in there, what, what drew her in? Why did she suddenly not care what anybody thought? Well, because her kid was that sick? Well, no, her kid's been that sick for a while, right? She's got a demon. What, did, what, what was the difference maker? Why is she suddenly so bold? Heard of him. She heard of him. So, and, and up to this point, what are the stories they're telling? Think. Think for a moment. Everything we've covered in Mark, 
What are the stories that she's heard? Well, let me, you know, there was this time, right? Where we, we, he was out teaching us late into the night, and we were super hungry, and all of a sudden, he had enough food for everybody. And the word is that he only started with one, right, a few loaves and a few fish, and he fed 5,000 of us. And she's like, wait, what? You, you say what now? Well, well, then there was this other time we were at a synagogue, and they were giving him a really hard time. And so he called forth this man with a withered hand, and his withered hand wasn't withered anymore. Come again? Okay, here, here, there, there, this, no, 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 that's nothing, right? Have you ever noticed this is how men are? I'm this way, it's really annoying. You tell me a story, I immediately start thinking of, a, of one that's bigger and better. <laughs> oh, you fell off a 13-foot cliff. <laughs> well, there was this one time my cousin's cousin, brother. <laughs> and so I just imagine this lady standing around, and everybody's trying to outdo everybody else by the outrageous things that Jesus has been doing. Then she hears this one. Well, you know, I don't know what he was doing, but, but he made us row all through the night. And we get out of the boat, and here's this crazy naked guy come running out of the tombs. And before we know it, he's, he's well. The guy clearly, he, he was saying crazy stuff, like he had a legion of demons inside of him. And then all of a sudden, he was better. And then all these screaming pigs came running by us and drowned themselves in the water. And then he made us get back in the boat. And then he wouldn't let the guy go with us. And she's like, okay, all right. All that other stuff was f- interesting. But now you're telling me that this guy can heal demons? Well, this isn't a guy. Like, I've seen guys. How many guys do you think this woman knows? I feel her pain. She's a lot like the woman at the well. How many sad sacks of men do you think this woman has met in her day? And what I love about this is she meets the man. That guy cares about widows? That guy, he let a woman touch him, and, and she was clean? He, he raised a little girl? What religious person cares about dead 12-year-old girls? Let me in. I, let me in. Uh, and she comes in, and what does she do? She falls down before him. How many people have done that? Not that many. A synagogue leader did that. The woman who he healed with the hemorrhage did it after she was healed. But this woman just comes rushing in where he's eating with his buddies and falls down in front of them. Now, she doesn't know Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. She doesn't know that, but yet she knows that. Why? Because she heard stories about him. She can discern who he is from what is said about him. She gets it. And she gets. The only response here is to rush in, to be near him, not far away, and to fall down before him. And she makes a request. How is Jesus going to respond? What's he going to say? Right? Oh, look, you guys were talking about defilement. Here's defilement. No, that's right. Is that what he's going to say? No. We have heard all the same stories up to this point that she's heard. Mark chapter 7, verse 27 and 28. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Oof. Now, I've said before, a gentleman is someone who does not insult people on accident. (laughs) 
And Jesus is, is the consummate gentleman. He never insults anyone on accident. But here you are, you've heard these stories, and you think, okay, this is the man. This is the guy. This is the, the person I've been waiting to meet my whole life, and he's going to heal my daughter. And you go rushing in, and you fall down before him, and he calls you a dog. Now, at that point, I think I might be like, maybe I was mistaken about this guy. Maybe I was mistaken. How many of you would? Right? You have all this bursting joy. You want all these expectations. And he's like, why am I going to feed dogs? I'm so, are you referring to me as a dog? Right? Our culture, if you were, refer to a woman as a dog, how does that usually go? Right? I mean, this is one of those things where I don't have to dig deep culturally. We all understand how this works. <laughs> I mean, I, just, I, used, I used to uh, go to this me- all-men's breakfast. It was like for homeless men. I mean, just imagine if a woman comes in there, right? And they're very strict. This is for men. And I'm like, hey, hey, I'm feeding the kids. The dogs can wait. They're like, are you kidding me? Uh, they would have thrown me out of the place. But here's Jesus. What is he doing by saying this? What is he up to? But what I love about this story, this is it here. Doesn't skip a beat. Me, I would have seriously considered for a moment if maybe I hadn't been mistaken. She comes right back at him. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, the readers of the gospel up to this point know that Jesus fed his own people with 12 baskets of leftovers. Are there crumbs? Have there been crumbs all along? How does she know that? How is she so certain that not only can he feed the kids, but there's going to be crumbs? Now, that's, that's a lot of boldness. It's a lot of boldness. If you remember the story that was read for us earlier today, parts of that I love. I love that, I love that the widow is going to eat her last meal and just die. Did you guys notice that? The wi- <laughs> She's like, Let me, I'm just going to make this cake. When I eat this pancake, I'm going to die. It just seems so melodramatic to me. It's like, I think you might live a little longer. But in that story, God sent a prophet to be fed by a widow. And the test for her was, are you going to feed me before you feed yourself? Are you going to go, is God's plan bigger than your plan? And in that story, what did she do? She made him a cake and brought it to him. She humbled herself and said, yeah, no, you're, you're the prophet of God. You're higher than I am. I'm going to feed you first. And what was the reward? The endless vat of oil. And then he goes on and he raises her son from the dead. Now, Jesus is in the same area that that story took place in. But is he a prophet who needs food from anybody? No. But what, see all the similarities here. There's food involved. There's a woman involved who's not a, a, who is a Gentile and not a Jew. There's this sick kid who is raised from the dead. All these elements coincide. But Jesus doesn't need anyone to feed him. He has enough food to feed 5,000 people with some leftovers. How does she know that? How does she just discern, oh, yeah, you got enough bread for the kids and the dogs? She's like, ma'am, I have a different question. Aren't you angry that he just called you a dog? Like, let's talk about that for a moment. He's so rude. Jesus is so rude. Ugh. And how many people get up and walk away because Jesus is rude? Think about that for a moment. I mean, you're going to what now? You're going to tell me to what now? 
Hey, it's my body. I'll do what I want. You can't legislate morality. Jesus, who do you think you are? Right? And, 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 and rethink gospel. This is one of those stories. The faithful, how they try to deal with the story is sometimes very sad. Because there's no mistake. He called her a dog. Now, what we need to deal, right? We're so offended by it that we want to change what he said. We're offended on this woman's behalf. Was this woman offended? Not at all. Why? Because she understands she is a dog. She understands you're a dog. She understands I'm a dog. She understands the morons who are writing the commentary I read were dogs. Right? She gets that we're all dogs. In fact, God can call us whatever he likes. I don't care. I'm here. You're here. I think you're pretty awesome. I, 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 I think this relationship, I want to be here with you. You can call me whatever you like. Now, what's funny is that he actually does actually choose his words carefully because there is a word that they commonly use for Gentiles, which is this kind of dog that lives in the street or the junkyard. Nobody owns it, but it's very vicious, and they usually have rabies. They're sick. They're scavengers. That's usually how Gentiles were referred. Now, what's fascinating here is that he refers to her. He uses the word for household pets, like puppies. So even this is like slightly condescending. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I never really want to be called boy by anybody. I don't want to be called a puppy. Oh, look at the puppy. Right? If I show up at Presbyterian, all the ministers I respect are like, oh, the puppy's here. You're like, what? <laughs> right? So he is actually being somewhat affectionate about her, but he still, you can't avoid the fact he's calling her a dog. And I think if we're offended by that and we want to change it, it demonstrates how arrogant we really are. Not only are you not going to call me a dog, Jesus, that's rude, man. You're not going to call anybody a dog, and so we're going to explain this away. I mean, they get in there and they're just like, I can't even believe what they do to the text to try to make it seem like he said something other than what he said. He said, no, I'm not giving my kids food to dogs. Now, what I really like about this is there's multiple levels to the test he's giving here. Remember, the uh, in, in 1 Kings... The prophet went and, she, and he tested the widow's faith. Are you going to submit yourself to God's purposes over your own purposes, even if it costs you your life? Well, he's doing like a two-tier test here. Because on one level, he's actually right, completely right. Up to this point, the children of God are the Jews. They're the chosen race. They're the ones who have the temple. They're the ones who have all the special laws. They're the ones who have all the funny hats and the long beards and the weird tassels and all the stuff, right? They got all the external school religious stuff. And in Romans 1.16, we see Paul teach something that is just crystal clear when it comes to the Bible story. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the Jews first, right? Where did Jesus first show up? He was not born in South America and then got on a boat and traveled over to Israel. That's not what happened. Sorry, Mormons. That's not what happened. Okay, he was born in Israel. He's a prophet of Israel. He is teaching them using the scriptures of Israel. He's talking about the temple of Israel. He's talking about the law of Israel. And then, right, but he understands the story. Them first and then the world. So he's prioritizing. Now, do you think she understands any of that? 
Does she understand that at all? No. No. What she does understand, though, is that right? imagine you're sitting at your table. Now, I don't have a lot of pets. There's a lot of stories about that. But I've been around dogs enough. I understand how it works. Okay? You, there you all are, and you got the fried chicken on the table, and you're, right, you're home from KFC, and you're trying to get it all on the paper plates as fast as you can, and you turn around, and there's, I don't know, what's a dog? Bungie. Bungie comes jumping up on the table and starts eating the bucket of chicken. And you're like, dude, that was my kid's chicken. What are you doing? Now I've got to order pizza. Right? We, we can all, right, we're trying to have a family dinner, and there's the dumb dog again. I, I always say dumb dog. I'm sorry. People love their pets. There's the lovable dog eating our chicken again. Right? She understands exactly what he, he came here. What does it say? He came for rest, and he didn't want to, anyone to know who he was. And here comes the puppy barging into the family dinner, trying to eat the chicken right off the paper plates. And so on one level, she completely understands what he's saying. Like, how humble is this lady? Yeah, I'm somewhere I'm not allowed, asking something you didn't really want to have to do right now, interrupting your rest. Like, you, he hasn't even put the fork in his mouth from all the, all the stuff he's been doing, and here's this lady who wants to take the food right off of his fork. He's like, man, this world is needy. But she doesn't care. This is humility right here. This is, oh, yeah, I am a dog, and I am interrupting you. Where else am I going to go? And there is enough on this table that all I got to do, like a dog, is lay underneath the table, and there will be more than enough. More than enough. And, and that's what this story is about. That's what this, are, are you humble enough? Are you really humble enough to, to eat at this table? Sure, yeah, okay. So Jesus is at the center of the table, and what does the disciples argue about? Well, I want to sit on his right, and I want to sit on his left. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's usually me, right? Oh, I'm, at, I'm invited to the table, and I'm that annoying guy that they've always got to get from the head of the table and move down to the lower spot, right, as Jesus tells that story. Oh, oh, this is a wedding, and this is the family table, and I'm sitting up at the family table? Oh, well, I don't know. The stuff up here looked nicer. I thought, you, have you met me? I'm Michael. Uh, yeah, no, you're, you're in the kitchen, actually, because <laughs> you didn't ever RSVP, so you're going to have to eat outside. Oh, 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 okay, cool. Right? <laughs> the humility of this woman is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And, and, and what is her argument here? The Pharisees are like, hey, man, what are you doing? Why are you letting these people do this contrary to the law? Uh, well, that's not even what the law says. You don't even know what you're talking about. Get out of here. What is, she, what is her appeal? Oh, well, you just said it would be inappropriate to give the kids food to the puppies. And, and she's arguing from his words. Not extra biblical words, right? She doesn't come appealing of her own merit. She, she's using the words of Jesus Christ to convince Jesus Christ to do the thing that he, he wants to do anyway. Now, how often, right? This is how often are you sitting there on your couch and, 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 and the circumstances are, are heavy? 
And you're like, if God would just talk to me, right? And, 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 and in this picture, you're, just, you're in the car, you're like, man, just send me a word. Just tell me what to do, right? And, you, and you're, you're like, did I hear something? Right? We're waiting for that voice to come from the sky to tell us what to do. And three feet away, there's the Bible on the bookshelf, a little dusty, still in that really nice leather cover that just looks so cool. And there's the word of God. She comes with a request. He responds to her. She responds to his response. This is actually how prayer works. This could be a whole sermon on just how prayer works. Okay, I'm going into the store. I'm really nervous about what's going to happen here because I don't have very much money, but i got to feed the family. <sighs> okay, I, I'm, I'm really s- stressed. God, what am I going to talk to me? Talk to me. Oh, look, a Bible. And then you read, and it says what? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He cares about every hair on your head. You're like, okay, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to go in here with my $4 and try to feed my family. Right? How much different would it be if you're having this interaction with him where he, you're seeing his words. You're seeing what kind of character he has. You're seeing what kind of person he is. You're going to go shop differently, aren't you? She appeals to him with his own words. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Well, you feed the kids first. And because you are who you are, All I'm going to do is just lie down here on the ground, and when a few things come falling down on the ground, that will be enough for me. Because, come on, you're you're Jesus. There's going to be leftovers. There's going to be so much feasting up top that it's going to look like a feast down below. And this is what I love here. In her answer, and I almost completely missed this, she is the first one and the only one in this entire gospel, to call him Lord. So not only does she respond back to him using his words, she calls him Lord. He calls her dog, she calls him Lord. That's humility. I I can't, I mean, that's as humble as it gets. Now, has she ever read Psalm 84, verse 10? Probably not. That one, David says, I would rather be a footman for one day in the house of the Lord than live live in the tents of the wicked. And this one, I would rather be a puppy dog in this man's house than be the queen of my own life. He's the Lord, not me. I'm just, I would rather be a puppy under his table than sit at my own table. And in one of the rare occasions in the whole gospel... This is what he says for, in, in, in verse 29 and 30. Okay, he doesn't do this very often. He says, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Now, he said elsewhere, I couldn't do much there because I didn't have faith. Right? Now, is he a prophet like from 1 Kings? Does he have to, okay, here we go again. Takes his fork, puts it down. Takes a little drink. It's like, let's go. Let's go find the kid. Wanders down the street, finds the kid, picks the kid up, falls across the kid three times. No. No, this isn't even like any of the healings he's done up till now. He's got the fork midway, and he's like, okay, done. 
because, because of her faith. Her faith is so great, he has very little to do. Think about that for a moment. Where the faith is great, his works are great. And she's right. He, I mean, it's, he's the God-man. All of these other miracles that he's doing, in an in, he just he makes his mind up and his mind and the demon leaves. Now, she gets home. How do you think she feels? Can you imagine? You go home and there's your dead, your kid who had a demon who, who was disgusting and defiled and unapproachable, right? We've seen what demons do. The, de- the demons cause the little kids to throw themselves in the fire and throw themselves in the river. And, and the naked dude living out in the tombs because nobody can go around them and nobody can bind them with a chain. And how long had she been dealing with this? We don't know, but five minutes would have been enough. And she goes home, and, and the guy who she fell down to in front of, who ca- she called Lord, all he said was, yes, it's done, and it was done. What can't he do? What can't he do? Do you imagine the humility that this woman has displayed and now the joy that she is experiencing? Do you want that joy? Right? Think about your life. This is not a woman who went to Jesus and said, I did everything I possibly could. I I, I did all the stuff that you're supposed to do right here in the word of God. She doesn't even know the word of God. She knows him. She, yeah, I'm a dog. But your word is so bountiful, your word is so full, that the rest of us sitting under the table just get the crumbs of it. Just get the thought in your mind, and it's enough to heal the person. Think in your own life, the people that you know that you want to see come to the Lord, the children that have wandered off, the little children that you're raising now that you're not so sure about. <laughs> Think about the darkness in this world. And and here Jesus is, and she humbles herself before him, falls down before him, like argues with him from his word, and what happens? He does exactly what she asks. Because she's done everything correctly? No, it's well established at this point she's a puppy. The will puppy can do nothing. He can do everything. Now the problem is we don't think we're puppies. The problem is we don't want to go to him and say, hey, listen, right? I'm nothing, but you're everything. And your word says this. What's going on? What about this? What about that? And this is what makes the psalm so uncomfortable for so many of us. Because you're reading and you're like, David, (laughs) did you just say I appeal to you in my righteousness? David, hello, I've read 2 Samuel. (laughs) There's this woman named Bathsheba. Stop saying that. Because what is he doing in the Psalms? Who is the righteousness of Israel? Right? We're, we're just dogs. Inside of us is what? Defilement. Jesus is the righteousness of God. And so you go and you pray and you argue and you reason this way. I am nothing. You are everything. I am garbage. I'm a puppy. You are an overflowing, gracious God. You have said this, and you have said this, and, and, and we were just noticing this today. I don't know how or where my son learned this, but it was quite instructive to me because he doesn't ask for things when he prays. He says he knows what he needs to pray about, and he says, I, I thank you that we were obedient today. I thank you for the sermon going well. 
I thank you that we sang well. I thank you that we were cheerful. And, and I'm thinking my, right, it was very distracting when I was driving. I was like, is he thanking him? He just assumes he's going to do it. He's not even asking. He just, he's, he, he, right? We know what this day is about. He knows what this day is about. And we're thanking him for making it about that. That's a different kind of prayer. Right? Because I, right, the more we know, the more trouble it is. And like, I find myself, my prayers sometimes are three times longer than they need to be because I need to make sure that I really check all the, well, if you really want, if you have the time, Right? I gotta remind him of all the stuff I've done. Well, you remember the other day, I was a good witness, and now I'm really hoping. No. Lay down under the table and say, hey, I'm nothing, you're everything, and I know that the scraps that fall off this table are gonna be a feast, baby. Thank you. Now, if we prayed like that, imagine our confidence, our hope. Imagine what kind of husband, wife, children, business owner, employee, neighbor we would be if, if that was our view of ourselves hey i'm just a dog in god's house right and i eat really well and there's enough of this to go around for everybody let me tell you about him it's work for her do you want this kind of do you want resurrection joy well the, the only way you're going to get resurrection joy is the death of humility there's no other way there is no other way. This woman, she's not the Lord of her own life. Jesus is the Lord of her life. She's falling down before him. She is fine being a puppy in his house. I pray that we all would be not, not just fine, but overjoyed. Because think of whose house it is. Think of, of what he has done. Think about who he is. We get so distracted by all the theology. This woman hears stories about who he is, and she's like, yes, I would rather be a puppy in that house than the lady of my own. And, and may God grant to all of us that kind of self-dying, self-sacrificing humility that we may know, know in our bones, in our hearts, in our minds, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our cars, and in our church, the joy of resurrection. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for this feast. We know, Lord God, that, that here at your table, you have offered us the food of your son. We, we know, Lord, that there is more than enough for each of us here, that there is more than enough for the world. We pray, Lord God, as we go from this, this day here, that we would carry it into our week, that we would know the death of humility, that we would know the joy of resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.